This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Mary Angelon Young about her recent book, The Art of Contemplation, published in 2021 by Home Press. In this compassionate and resourceful book, Angelon gently guides the reader into a larger awareness, reminding us of simple ways to stay grounded in the present moment and connect with what is real in an increasingly unreal human world. With personal narrative, meditative reflections, and invitations to creative expression, she draws us into the garden of her inner world. Here we witness how it is possible to transform the suffering we experience in ourselves and others into a nourishment that feeds our essential being. With a background in Jungian studies and counseling, in decades of life within a contemplative community, Mary Angelon Young draws from a wide range of faith traditions as well as from transpersonal, psychosomatic, and archetypal psychologies. She fearlessly engages both the soul and the shadow elements of our human nature, inviting us to confidently welcome the potential for self-understanding contained within our dark moods, doubts, and even our despair. Mary Angelon Young, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you, Stuart. It is such a joy to be with both of you today. Well, it's, it's fabulous to get to talk to you about this new book, uh, or new to us at least, The Art of Contemplation, because I really, um, it's my favorite book, I think, of all the books I've read of yours to date. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Definitely. Um, so it's, um, it's great to have this uh, opportunity to chat with you about it. Thank but perhaps you. you are welcome. But perhaps let's we can uh, let the audience um, know how this project came about for you. What what got you going? Uh, I mean, you speak a little bit about it in you know in the book itself, but um, but just to whet the appetite of uh, our listeners, uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I have to say that the pandemic was really the catalyst. And um, as I describe in the book, I started writing, keeping a journal. And writing has long been um, a spiritual practice and a, and a great place of refuge for me and a joy. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes a sometimes a burden, sometimes a great, great, great joy and the creativity of it and everything that that is for the inner life and the outer life. Um, but the pandemic really threw me into that, uh, threw me back upon myself and my um, my capacity to have a contemplative life beyond years of structured practice. Like I, I really had to find something in myself that was a, um, a, a synthesis or, or an integration of years of, of being on a spiritual path and, and engaging formal practices. It's like now I needed something that was more formless. <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting um, observation because 
at the surface, if someone were to tell you you're going to have to spend two years, uh, you know, uh, away from the normal avenues of uh, social interactions that we create for ourselves, you'd think, hey, well, that that's perfect. That's like a, uh, a built-in opportunity for reflection. And yet, when it's forced upon us without our uh, uh, expecting it, it seems like uh, a lot of people were taken off guard. You know, this wasn't the retreat uh, moment that we were all expecting. It was a, a kind of a forced separ- separation. Yeah, it was a forced separation, and it was also really a confrontation with our mortality, with um, with our deep fears, our anxieties, the unknown. It was very much a confrontation with the unknown. And, you know, there was a sense, even pretty early on in that um, sheltering in place, that the world was never going to be the same again. And therefore, I will never be the same again. And what does that mean? It's all of the unknown and the mystery of that and the uncertainty of it. So it, it took some time for 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 me. And I heard this from, from many other people, too, that as time went on into the pandemic that we began, and certainly I did, I began to have an experience of like unexpected joy. But that joy came through a lot of sorrow and and this this confrontation that I'm talking about, the confrontation with the unknown at a new level and in a new way. And we can work with emptiness for years, decades in our lives through meditation practice. And then suddenly life throws us a curveball. Life throws us into a situation where all of the old um, reference points are challenged or they're just not there. Well, one of the one of the points for someone like you, I mean, you you live on an ashram and yet you have a very active uh, uh, teaching life and um, and ways in which you interact with a lot of people from time to time, at least mm-hmm. um, outside the ashram. And and I think um, I think that's something that not all listeners will know about you. So so even more than someone who's more or less home based or or based in in the, the patterns of uh, immediate life and work, um, you had um, a, a, a retraction, necessary retraction during the pandemic in a way that not everyone would would have experienced is that fair to say yeah i think it is fair to say um and and also at my age because i turned 70 (laughs) in 2020 in november of 2020 and um um so there was also this element of 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 the of the oncoming uh develop uh, uh growth growth of myself as an elder and the necessary contemplative inner solitude, even if you are with people. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, I was very blessed and very fortunate to be on an ashram that's located in nature that I could, uh, you know, in the high desert here in Arizona, that I could really turn to the natural world, which has always been a very, very important teacher for me and source of refuge and inspiration and and renewal and all of that um that the deeper mystical relationship to the natural world really came forward for me and and so 
uh, yes, I was blessed. It's one of the. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it's one of the features of the book to to me, because you return to this theme throughout the book, mm-hmm. and um, and while I I think I'd heard you in our in our long relationship, uh, I'd heard you talk about this before, but but I think um, that the the nurturance that you have uh, found in nature is something that I didn't perhaps know how deep in your history, personal history, it, it uh, originated. Right. Uh, now, I, I think that many people who know me um, now and in the last few decades of my life um, probably didn't know. Um, and I began to, one of the, the things about this book that's different from previous books that I've written is that I go much deeper into uh, little short, little short s- stories from my own life's journey. So it has this, it, it's not a memoir, it really truly is not a memoir, but it has a thread of some reflection that hints at the memoir process, which I'm very passionate about. And I'm doing a lot of, uh, writing workshops focusing in on memoir writing because that's alive for me right now. But that book, this book, um, The Art of Contemplation, has that little thread running through. And so I do talk about my years in uh, my first community in the Arkansas Ozarks. And that was so, so important and formative for me, so essential to me. So that probably was very new to you, even though you've known me for a long time. Well, I'd heard you speak very sort of parenthetically about about um, that background, but not, uh, you know, you were you were just speaking off the cuff. And so you didn't you didn't develop that um, uh, when I've heard you speak in the past. So it's a feature of the book that I really um, uh, came to appreciate, as well as the general theme that you you've just mentioned of of. Looking at um, past experiences, both positive, as we've, we've just been discussing, but also some of the real challenges in your life. And it, it, it's a feature of the book that um, I, uh, I know that people will resonate with. At least I yeah. resonated yeah, with. Yeah, I, I felt like it was a very nice demonstration of using the personal as a uh, a way into a broader contemplation or a, a broader reflection on some of the larger themes that you're talking about. And I think that is, that is an interesting uh, distinction because it wasn't a memoir because the book wasn't really all about yourself, but other books that you've written have been about something. And here it's about something, but you're bringing yourself into it in a more personal way than, um, uh, let's say a slightly more academic or externalized treatment would have. Right. Right. Well, you know, I, I had uh, a number of my close friends who have really encouraged me. And in some cases, like he begged me to like, please write, write to write for us in a more personal way Hmm. about the path. And, and um, that's really up on my, my radar in a big way these last several years. And it really started with beginning to branch out into um, 
into writing fiction, in, into writing historical fiction with this little novel that I wrote about Chandi Das and Rami that I think we talked about this before, on the, maybe on the Mystical Positivist. Yes, we did, uh, I think. Yeah, I think we did. Uh, my relationship with the Bubbles of Bengal and, and their predecessors, the Sahajiyas. And and so that book had a lot of, um, it was certainly not memoir per se, but with anyone who's writing fiction, there's a lot of, there's a lot of the author in there. It's coming out of the writer's personal experience. And so that was kind of a beginning for me. Um, and and being really encouraged, as I said, by by some of my close friends and saying, really, this would be so great for you. It would be great for for others. Do it. <laughs> oh, really that, encouraging me. That emphatic, huh? That's good. Yeah, that emphatic. Right. Well, maybe we could um, uh, uh, just talk a little bit about the the theme of the book or the subject of the book. So it's it's the art of contemplation, and I was looking up uh, the etymology of contemplation, which was uh, interesting in itself because I think in contemporary English. There's a lot of different meanings, uh, but, you know, there's clearly the meaning of putting a full attention on something or to, to meet something. And in the Christian uh, tradition, there's even more of a sense of creating a space for the divine. But the actual etymology is interesting because um, it basically means to mark out a space for observation like an auger does. Mm-hmm. So the templum, the templum is the uh, uh, the area for taking the auguries, and so you're sort of uh, con is with, so you're with this space, uh, this open space for the auguries to appear, and so there's definitely this sense of a meeting of something that's beyond oneself, and not like a, a word like thinking, where we're actually doing something or processing something, but. There's a, a sense of a waiting in, built into the word. So I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about what contemplation means to you in the context of the book and uh, and your practice. Well, it's interesting you bring up the etymology of the word because I actually go into that um, in it near the somewhere near in the first chapter or some somewhere in there. Um, contemplari, the Latin root. And, it, and it's exactly as you say that it's a creating a space for auguries, which of course is divination. And in the ancient world, as you say, that that's going to happen in a temple. That to the 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 point that that or one of the fundamental kind of contexts of uh, uh, underlying theme in this book is that that it's within you, it's within me. And I might be looking for all kinds of divinations. Maybe I have an astrology reading or I throw the I Ching when I have a diff, you know, tough question or tough decision to make, or I'm looking for signs or I'm paying attention to my dreams or whatever, all of these different ways of, of, of working with that. But ultimately that it's within ourselves. Everything is there within. And contemplation is is um, is a is it's really it, it's universal to all religions. I mean, every religion sooner or later, every spiritual path, whether it's a formalized religion or not, is going to bring us to contemplation, to this deep dive within, and knowing ourselves. 
from the surface all the way down through all of those layers to the deepest um, underpinnings of our true nature, where we're going to get to the origins of things. And that's where the uh, auguries come. That, that's where, you know, contemplation as some, as a process that reveals truth or reveals wisdom or reveals inner knowing. Um, but I also, in, in the way that I'm working with contemplation in, in this book is this really free form. It's very bowl in that it's, it's a Sahaja approach mm. that it's, and, and granted that I wrote this book after decades of formal practice and formal meditation sitting practice and formal mantra practice and, and, um, uh, japa and all of the, you know, all of that and other practices. Um, really, if we, whatever, however our journey or our path has unfolded for us, if we really are on the path of self-knowledge, contemplation is going to bring us to, you know, gnosis, to the gnosis, the, the, the radical knowing. And, um, and is that is that going in the direction you're hinting at there, Stuart? No, absolutely. I mean, I think I think what's interesting in the um, book is you distinguish contemplation as a path or a process uh, from more formal uh, things like meditation, and uh, and and so I guess I guess I'm look, kind of looking at uh, exploring that or trying to understand that as well because um, you do distinguish it. It's not it's not the same as meditation, um, and meditations obviously take many different forms. But there's there's a sense of receiving in this that you know and a holding of a space uh, for inspiration to arise in many, many different forms. And I guess just like an augury where auguries could be the pattern of birds flying in the sky, uh, you're looking at a variety of things, whether it's nature or whether it's the, our own life histories and the traumas that we've uh, uh, endured, any of these things when looked at in this way, become a ground for a deeper inspiration to arise. Yes, it's a it's a um it's a a paying attention so that paying attention and bringing uh loving awareness to the moment is is the fabric of our lives. And this is one of the things that I love about contemplation is that you can be doing things and be deeply contemplative. Absolutely, and and so one 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 feature of the book, I, I'm just looking at the table of contents in my hand here, and um, the second major section of the book is called Sacred World, and it seems to me, in the context of what you were just saying, that um, that contemplation is coming to the temple, but it's both the inner temple and the outer temple. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're aware of what we're being given in augury or, or whatever, whatever inspiration, whatever form uh, you're talking about, uh, on the outside, as it were. But it is appreciating the sacred 
within and bringing those two together that's that that's really interesting to me because you know as as you were just saying there's there's a um um a coming together the con of contemplation um that is is the key here so I, I, I'm interested to hear you talk about about how this the the bringing together. I mean, you speak about it a lot in the book and in different and coming from different places, inner yoga and stuff like that. But but um, I'm wondering if um, if what how I just framed it um, resonates with your intention with the book. Definitely. Um, some years back, maybe I don't know, ten years ago or so, uh, we a friend of ours is Tessa Balecki. She's a Christian mystic, and for many years she was the mother superior at Nanda uh, Carmelite Monastery that used to exist in Southern Colorado. And Tessa was talk, came to visit us at Treveni, the ashram where I live, and and she was talking about, and she has been a contemplative for decades, for her entire life since she was nineteen years old. And she was talking about the contemplative journey and and the contemplative life. And she made this comment. She said, if your contemplative life is not joining you completely to what's happening out in the world and the suffering of people and animals and trees and life and, you know, the cosmos, then it is not a contemplative life. Hmm. You are missing the point. Of it, and and this rang so true to me. My inner experience that it was actually, you know, living on an ashram. Even though, of course, I traveled extensively with my teacher Lee, um, and was always going places and doing things, and in Europe and India and so on. So I was never like uh, sheltered only on the ashram, but nonetheless, it was still ashram life, and um, um. My experience of that was the deeper I went in to my spiritual practice, the more I was feeling um, profound uh, uh, connection with everything, everything from, you know, and, 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 and part of this is, is like not making a distinction between, say, psychological work and spiritual work, not making a distinction between what's happening with the elections and my, and my, my deep spiritual work, because, because I am not separate and my inner life is not separate from the outer world or, or my outer life. And, you know, of course, you know, we, we, many, many, many people are, are bearing test testimony to that. And I know I'm speaking to the choir with both of you, because I know you, and I know that you, you, you know, deeply feel what is happening in the world. And this is, um, it's to me, it's just so essential to the, an authentic spiritual journey that we may spend a long period of time in our lives in the cave, but soon, you know, meditating alone in the cave, eating nettles, like, you know, <laughs> Milarepa, but, um, Sooner or later, we have to come back into the village, the culture, the the tribe, and bring what it is that we've gotten. 
Yeah, the oxherding pictures, of course, come to mind yes. uh, from yeah. East Asia, the East Asian tradition. But, but yeah, I think on that theme, though, it, it's interesting as you speak of that that um, there's something about the journey of the contemplative that provides a bridge such that we don't fall into into despair when we encounter the world again. Right, and and that's that's so important because. Uh, it's so easy for, you know, people who don't maintain that kind of connection to the divine, at least consciously, to look at uh, the situations like our election situation or look, to look at the uh, what's happening and the ecological systems on the earth and just fall into this sense of hopelessness and despair. And there's something about the space of the contemplative and the the knowing of the presence of the divine in that seeing that provides a i don't know a broader context or something it's just there's something that's different about that because uh we don't fall into despair in that scene and yet that scene still touches us and and we still feel it and we feel grief and pain and um, concern and even the taste of despair, but it never seems to spiral into that. So you decide, how, how do you see that? Well, I see that, that, you know, despair, this, this is a great word. Um, and I have tasted despair. I, I, I feel that despair is actually part of the journey. My experience is it is part of the journey. But like you said, we don't fall into it. And so how, how I hear that when you say it, Stuart, is that, is that we don't, um, we don't become drowned. Like, yeah. like we have, we have to find the resilience ourselves, which a contemplative practice builds is one of the great, great things about this fabric of life that is contemplative and that we are willing to live in the depths to, 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 to be in, um, you know, C.G. Young has this in the Red Book in his personal work. He writes about this relationship between the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times. And he talks about the necessity of the interplay between the two. And it is not easy. And so when we're talking about despair or depression or dis- disillusionment or, um, or being just deconstructed, just feeling ourselves being broken down, um, this, this is a real, a very real part of the contemplative process. And part of having the, of, of developing the resilience to stay with it and not be drowned by it, not to just fall, fall into it and never come back again, um, is the willingness to go there. The willingness to go, okay, there's, there's gold in the depths, which is a kind of classic, you know, Jungian aphorism, but it's true that it, it is just the truth that that's how we, get bigger is through tasting despair being willing to taste it because people are experiencing it every single day they are living people are our um our own self my own self in the form of the other is experiencing despair right now 
can I turn my back on that? No, not if not if I uh, not not if I'm really um, willing to live the spiritual, the, get to some fruition even on the spiritual journey because more and more is asked of us. Well, I th- I I really appreciate you bringing this point forward because you know there there have been many um, perspectives on spiritual practice in general, and some. Some, you know, even even great practitioners will highlight the need to to have a context that where we where we have, take sanctuary. In fact, your your first um, your first section title is "Taking Shelter" in this book. But but um, but the um, the point you just raised about uh, young. Uh, discussing the spirit of the times as being part of the context that we live in, and, and thus inevitably we ha- we we are in contact with it, even if we're living in a cave, to some to some degree, it seems to me. And and in my mind, um, in a recent conversation that we had. Um, with you, um, not today, but but um, like a week ago, you were speaking about the importance of myth to you, to your work, for sure, because the novels that you that you were mentioning, or the, or the uh, tripartite novel that you were mentioning, is uh, um, is based on that. So I'm wondering if you could talk about um, the role of myth in helping us mediate but not insulate ourselves from the spirit of the times that we that we happen to be in because myth myth is bigger than the immediate um the mythic dimension is bigger than any immediate challenge that we have but it helps us i think to understand something about the the immediacy that we're experiencing Speak, speak to that, if you will. And, uh, yeah, thank you, Rob. Um, and and it, it helps us by, by providing a, a context and a wisdom for this process of tasting despair mm-hmm. or making the underworld journey, you, you know, yeah. being, being um, uh, ripped, ripped to pieces. And, you know, Inanna, the great goddess who is the, the planet Venus in Sumer, four or five thousand years ago has to make the descent. The reason why she descends to the underworld where her sister Arashmagal is the is the goddess of you know, the underworld death and dismember and all of that. Um she she puts her ear to the ground and she she hears the call of wisdom. And that is what that is what uh inspires her or calls her or motivates her or lures her to the underworld. And before she can even get in the gate, the gatekeeper says, she knocks at the door and the gatekeeper says, uh, who are you? Doesn't even reckon she is Venus. She is the, the morning star. She is the beloved of the Sumerian people. She's the queen of heaven and earth. Who are you? You're nobody down here. (laughs) <laughs> and so she has to give up her crown. She has to give up her lapis beads. She has to give up her measuring rod because she's also, you know, involved in architecture and 
building temples. I mean, she does everything. She's awesome. Um, she has to give up everything and she has to enter the underworld naked. So there's something about these mythic stories. And of course that one goes on and it's very complex and there's all kinds of things that happen or the same with Persephone, who also in, in Greece, you know, a, a thousand years later has to ha, gets pulled into the underworld by Hades. And she's walking through the field of flowers, perfectly innocent and happy and unexpected. Suddenly out of nowhere, she is pulled by the hand of Hades, reaches up through the, the flowering earth and pulls her into darkness. And she has to go through an initiation. So what the myths are telling us is that when we go through these times of despair, of darkness, of depression, of danger, of facing danger, of facing our own demise, death, all of it, the D times, as I talk about it in the art of contemplation, that that there is a potential um, initiation of consciousness that happens and that there is a rebirth if we're willing to go there and be present to be aware and present to the forces that we encounter. Anytime we're talking about myth and the the whole mythopoetic sort of uh, lens to, to life and life experience, we're speaking in twilight language, which I've talked about before in this podcast on this on your podcast twilight language or sandhya basha in the sanskrit uh twilight language we're speaking in symbolic language we're spe- the whole story is told to us in in symbolic terms <clears throat> the whole the whole myth is the 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 wisdom is revealed to us through this, this kind of symbolism so it's bypassing to some extent our uh, our need for everything to be rational and understood and to have control over it already just by speaking to us in twilight language. That's interesting because uh, I hadn't thought exactly of uh, narrative itself. I mean, it, it's clear, as you say, that, that, that a story narrative uh, kind of sidesteps the inclination of the rational mind to categorize because I think we have a, you know, assuming we have any interest at all in the story being told that we're hearing, um, we suspend, you know, there's, there's a famous phrase in science fiction, uh, suspending disbelief. So we sus- suspend the normal analytical responses in order to he- find out what happens next, because somehow there's an inclination that we need that there's a, a sense that we need to know what happens next in the story that has these mythic dimensions that you're talking about. It's very, it's very interesting. So uh, also I, I think I, with the, the mythopoetic expression that it, it works on our feeling uh, or it works on our heart center in a way that, by by design, it circumvents the actions of the intellect. <clears throat> so the intellect can't really analyze because uh, it doesn't fall. The the mythic doesn't fall into our normal categories of true and false. And but we still respond with feeling to those things. And in that, there's the uh, trans- transformative potential. I think. Yeah. So true. 
Yeah, the feel the feeling dimension, which is uh, we have to keep working on that one because yeah. we've been trained from from birth to to circumvent our feelings or repress them or work with them, you know, in some kind of way that they don't really they they can't um, really have their full effect, their full transformational effect, which is of course transformation is not. Uh, the you know the result of transformation may be wonderful, but the process itself <laughs> is not necessarily. If that's what we're talking about, the process is 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 not wonderful. Um, but I want to go just say one other thing about the mythopoetic perspective and this thing of um, being fully present in whatever is happening in life, being present at a feeling level, like um, being. Uh, Rob, I think you were mentioning, and you know, in in a lot of in in many spiritual paths, what we're being asked to do is to is to adjust a vertical ascent and like don't you know like get beyond this mess mm-hmm. any way we can. So you know, repeat your mantra, uh, uh, chant, uh, meditate. Uh, uh, like like we don't want to be identified with the mess. We want to like move beyond it. And the mess is actually holy. It's a holy mess. (laughs) It is a mess, but it's holy. It's sacred. And that gets back to the sacred world. And so this, one of the things that the myth teaches us is, is, um, is, has something to do with this, um, being, and, and, you know, and this, this is connected to alchemy and definitely to the work of C.G. Jung. Uh, but we find it in Tantra and in, and in the ancient Celtic tradition, this capacity to stay between the opposites. So over here we have sorrow. And then on this side, we've got joy. Um, we, we want to be able to fully experience both of those and then go back to the middle and be in the middle between the opposites, not to be completely identified. Like, so if we're completely identified with sorrow, we're going to go all the way down. Like you were saying, Stuart, we're going to, we're going to fall into despair and we're never going to come back. If we go too far into joy, we're going, you know, like the Sufis say on the path of, of awakening, there are 70,000 veils of darkness and there are 70,000 veils of light. So too much joy becomes unreal it's just as unreal as too much sorrow so we we taste each we taste the rasa the nectar of our of of bittersweet the bittersweet of life the whole palate but we we work with being able to hold the tension between the pairs of opposites and myth teaches us about this the mythopoetics perspective um, informs us about this. Yeah, I, I was also reflecting as as you talked about the vertical and the horizontal that, um, you know, in some sense, yes, spiritual traditions and spiritual practices will, you know, focus on the vertical and not, not put attention on the horizontal in a certain kind of sense. But I think that you're offering a, uh, uh, alternative reading of that. And the word that comes to mind for me is that the, um, uh, the vertical is, is the, the domain of meaning or the domain of value and the horizontal without meaning or value is empty. Uh, it's meaningless 
And, and so to deepen at the vertical, uh, it, it can be seen as vertical or it can be seen as going infinitely inward as you, as you describe in your book that to go to find meaning in what the world is presenting us, whether it's, uh, uh, uh sweet or bitter, it, holding that meaning is, is a deepening. And that, that is a different way of thinking, construing the vertical because it's, uh, it, it necessarily means the vertical and the horizontal have to be intertwined in order for their, you know, in order for existence to, uh, continue. And so we, we bring meaning to, to the events of our lives. And, and I think that what I love about the book is that it's, it's kind of a roadmap for doing that. And it's necessarily unstructured because, uh, our lives, you know, our, the structure of our lives is our unique inheritance. And so your roadmap is basically showing how do you, how can you bring meaning to everything that happens in our lives? Yeah, I like what you're saying about the the uh, vertical having depth. That really um, that really rings true for me because it's uh, we're, the vertical is the way many religious traditions um, and spiritual practices. The way it's approached is that we're just going up. We're just going to go up and up there. Once we get up there, we we, we we'll actually. Uh, transcend everything, which is a sort of oblivion. You know, there's this a little bit of that, like escapism about that. And, and really that vertical dimension has this beautiful plumbing of the depths. And yeah. that's what's necessary. Yes. Willingness to plumb the depths and then meaning is brought. Then, then the sacred world shines for us. All of it, the whether the leaves are falling in the autumn and we're going into a period of 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 winter and cold and ice and snow and wind, or the late the new the new leaves are coming in the spring. But it's all beautiful. It all yeah. has beauty. It all has beauty and sanctity. Yeah, I guess I, I as you were saying that I was uh um uh, thinking about the ecological crisis that we're all so very much concerned about and, yes. uh, uh, construing that as a winter is a, is a remembering that, uh, spring will come too, that, that life persists and life, uh, by its very nature returns. And yet the grief is that, uh, what we've known may not be, uh, uh, what we see again. Oh, there's a lot of grief. Um, there's so much grief when it, when it comes to the situation that the earth, like what is what we've done, the, the consequences of our rejection of really the, the feminine, the goddess, the depths, the, the body and the body of the earth and all of that, the waters of the earth and, the elements, all of it. Um, there's tremendous, tremendous grief. And, and looking from a mythic lens, we can at least see that life will go on. There will be rebirth, whether it's with human beings or without human beings. And 
if we if we um bring the if the sacred heart is open and we're feeling about that we can at least we can at least um take refuge in the process of life how sacred that is with or without us which is a great way of preparing for our own death as well because um this this thing this vessel this this appearance this this cycle of 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 evolution that i think of as myself mary angela and young um will be gone <laughs> something will endure and the myth tells us that something will endure again and again the all the myths tell us something will endure but it will be changed and this this like you know the bittersweet truth of that and being able to hold that pair of opposites of of being and non-being yeah you know what were you going to say rob i was going to say i was going to uh, bring us back to the to the, to the actual book text because there's uh, something that really struck me when i was first reading the art of contemplation was the your section on rumination uh, great word. I don't think it gets used that often these days very much. But you, you, I'll just, I'll just quote a couple of sentences. You said you write, rumination goes over and over the same thoughts in a circular loop. This can be a positive process of digestion. In fact, the definition of rumination says that it also means repeatedly chewing. It's useful to contemplation until it becomes an obsessive, obsessive pattern, like when worry leads to anxiety that escalates into panic. And I think this is, a, this is an, an important point that, it, that, that sometimes, especially when we're, when we're focusing, as you were discussing a, little, a few minutes ago, about the uh, obsession with the vertical, with um, getting out of this holy mess, and um, this distinction between positive and and obsessive rumination is i think one of the one of the one of the places where the art of contemplation the rubber hits the road you know because this is a very common problem for, for I, I hear and i have experienced myself um for for so many people and I'm so glad that you that you bring this out in the book as as uh, explicitly as you do, because it's um, because you know the word contemplation to me has a has has a positive connotation, um, and yet it also contains these sorts of these sorts of um, side paths, if you will. So how is it that you 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 it came it came to you to to uh, to put this part of the process forward like that? Well, because I have have observed myself doing it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm just writing from my experience of the inner life and really tracking it and paying attention to it and being honest with myself about it. Um, rumination, you know, okay, so what kind of reflexive capacity do we have as an individual? So much of spiritual life and spiritual practice is it, it, only going to bear fruit 
in relationship to how much we're willing to be really honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because we can hide out in in traditional spiritual practice, in the forms of practice for decades and then get to the moment of, you know, the big, you know, life throws us that, that um, you know, uh, um, un- unexpected turn and we're dealing with um, the death of a loved one or some or, or, or a disaster of some kind or, or our own death. And we find that we do not have the strength. We somehow it did not build the strength to be able to meet the challenge, to have the inner strength and resilience and capacity. So this this reflexive capacity, which we build in contemplative life, has a lot to do with being honest about, okay, am I ruminating? Is my ruminating right in this moment? Am I just obsessing about this thing? Obsession is one of the aspects of the shadow, you know, one of the symptoms of the shadow that something it, it needs to be brought into awareness in an on, in a really honest and true, the light of awareness needs to be brought to that thing and self and radical self honesty. And, um, however we do that, if we have a practice of self observation, if we have a practice of of um, you know, we we come at it more through a psychological lens, like maybe we, you know, have been in analysis, Jungian analysis for years, and we've done what's traditionally called shadow work, or whether we we work at it just through what my teacher called radical self honesty, which is a form of inquiry, a form of inner inquiry, and. Like uh, Socrates said, Plato, all of them, know thyself. Isn't that what was emblazoned, like carved in the temple, in the temples in ancient Greece? Know thyself. So am I ruminating? Is my rumination bearing fruit? Or am I just moving on the fast road toward toward my own sufferings, deep suffering of deep anxiety? And I want to say something about that this my experience of during the pandemic was that anxiety of in the collective uh, unconscious of humanity was so activated and so present in the just free floating. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, was it like in any given moment, is this my anxiety? Is this the anxiety everybody's feeling? Does it matter? Maybe not. Maybe it doesn't matter whether it's personally mine or it's the collective, because my experience is on the spiritual path that the more we open up, the more we're doing that kind of work for everyone. We are working on behalf of the world soul. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the the work of uh, the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin in in East Asian traditions, but... um, but I'm I, I'm reminded of of an experience I had when I was pretty pretty new, just a few years along in in my own uh, spiritual practice, and and I met a man who um, said he had been uh, 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 doing a, a yogic meditation for thirty years, mm-hmm. and he had reached the point where he realized it did him no good whatsoever, and it was it was. 
you know, one of one of, oh, I should I should you know run through the list of your D words that you use in the uh, in the chapter about um, the contemplative descent. So you list. Um, well, I'll, I'll just read it, read the sentence. Even if there was no pandemic or climate change, life would inevitably seize or thrust us into quote D times unquote of depression, dislocation disillusionment, doubt, despair, deconstruction, dis-ease. And that, um, um, so here, th this gentleman who, who I'm sure tried to engage in a practice that would, that would take him deeper, but it turned out not, he must, I, I don't know what he was doing with his practice, but apparently it did not produce reportedly to me, um, the, kind of, the kind of depth, another D word here, a good D word, that, that um, uh, at least I would wish people to, experience, to find in practice. So, um, so these, the, the, this descent part is, the, is so crucial to contemplation, and that's one of, another feature of the book, because you 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 don't shy away from describing both the this overall picture of the descent, the contemplative descent, but also of acknowledging some of your own moments mm -hmm. um, of of this form of descent. Mm -hmm. It's brave, really. Uh, well, thank you. But in my and in my my experiences, that this is this is the uh, feminine process of transformation that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, whether it's a man or a woman, it doesn't matter at all. Whether it's a woman or a man, or or uh, uh, someone who is identified as non-binary, it doesn't matter. It is still, uh, well, we can use this word feminine on that polarity. Mm -hmm. It's that polar, that side of us that really has been repressed and denied for now for, you know, over 2000 years. Whether we want to call it feminine or something else, which I'm not really sure what that would be yet. Although I, I hear in, uh, there's a, a women's group that I, that I lead with Christina Sell, and we're working with this, the heroine's journey uh, from mm. the work of Maureen Murdoch. And it is, uh, um, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, template. It is not perfect, but it deals with this, the, the need to descend. And um, that's the, that's the opposite of just ascend into the light Mm -hmm. Just like don't don't go there into the into the holy mess. Just ascend into the light. So we're really, I mean, of course, we're talking about spiritual bypassing now, which has become such a buzzword. Which in in the culture, it's kind of too bad because I John Wellwood was a personal friend, and his his wife and widow Jennifer is 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 a very dear friend and someone that I, that I honor. Tremendously in their their uh, pioneering work around mm -hmm. spiritual bypassing. This is John co coined the the term originally, and right. so that is what we're talking about. Um, 
So can you can you explain what you mean by the, the overuse of the term? Well, I think it's been weaponized. Oh my goodness! Really? Well, yeah. in the sense, like it becomes a way of like uh, 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 establishing, you know, like oh, you're spiritually bypassing. You know, it's a way to uh, 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 and so, so in that sense, it's because it's become so common a term. I think it. I, I, I that's how I see it. I'm curious how you how you see it. No, yeah, I, I agree with you, Stuart. It's like, uh, oh, it's a card that you can play now mm. that that actually buffers everybody or shuts down the the consideration altogether in a weird sort of way. Um, well, well sort of, it's it's kind of perfect because uh, uh, by playing the card, you're doing spiritual bypass. So it becomes a thing that it uh, yes. <laughs> it's self-referential. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we don't understand unless we know ourselves really, really, really well down to the depths. We don't understand how how deeply ingrained our our denial is about about actually um, the process of not spiritual bypassing, of being willing to to um, to enter into the sacred world and the holy mess. I, you, you could you could add that to your li- to your list of D words denial. I like that. Denial is a good one. Yeah, it is a good very, one. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a related uh, uh, concept in here that uh, I wanted to ask you to speak about, which is uh, I think the the chapter title is the gift of the broken heart. Mm-hmm. And you know, whereas we've talked about despair and depression and and being willing to visit that, there's this notion of the broken heart, and and that similarly, it's paradoxical. But I, I'd like you to speak about that in terms of this uh, uh, path of contemplation and what that what that means for you, and what it means to honor the broken heart and, in a sense, you know, keep keep the wound open. Right. Yes, to keep the willingness to keep the wound open, to feel it all. And that is that place between the opposites that, that I was talking about, about can we bear the friction, the tension, the heat, um, the, 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 you know, the, what is the taste of bittersweet? It is bitter and it is sweet. And, you know, so so the thing about staying between the or or bearing the tension between the opposites is that the longer we can do that, the more what C.G. Jung called the transcendent function or the the reconciling forces, as as you would say, I think, in, in fourth way language, the reconciling force, or we might just call it grace, the unknown third (laughs) comes into play. And heartbreak has a lot to do with this being able to stay in the in the um, in the tension between the opposites of good and evil, of um, you know birth and death, and so on. You know, so on and on and on. The pairs of opposites—they're endless because life is made up of them. This non-duality, duality, and so on. Um, but heartbreak, holy heartbreak. Um, is what we get in my experience. And, and this, this comes, I, I, I want to give, um, you know, to honor my teacher Lee, because this is one of his fundamental teachings is that you must have a broken heart that only God can heal on the path. You need to have 
a broken heart that only God can heal. And this is this is essential, you know, Lee Lee teaching, Lee Laswick teaching, and it's a Cohen, of course. And when we have to plumb the depths of that, that is not going to be an easy uh, revelation. It is a revelatory teaching. And, and so the only way to know what that means is to live it fully, to, 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 to live into our heartbreak about what's happening. How can we not be heartbroken about the conditions in, in our world today? How can we not be heartbroken? Heartbroken, and how do we stay open to that, and 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 stay open to the aliveness, the feeling of it? Um, there's, it's a profoundly alchemical. Um, <laughs> it's a commitment to alchemy, and it, it it is it is you know inviting the fire, inviting the transforming fire, the tra- transformation of water and fire into. Or um, I'm speaking now in symbolic language because in Sandhya Basha, again, because you can't talk about it any other way. It's yeah. not rational. But there is a nectar that is produced by the broken heart that maybe we could call it longing. Maybe we could call it um, devotion. Maybe we could call it. Many different, we could call it by lots of different names, but ultimately it's not any of those. It's a, it is a nectar. But, you know, in, in the Hindu tradition, uh, it's understood that the rasas, the nectars, have many different flavors. You know, they have nine to be exact. They have nine flavors. So, you know, nine is a sacred number. It's related to the solar system and it, it it's, uh, a, a number it was sacred to the Celts as well. The three, the three, you know, the three gunas: creation, preservation, destruction. The three of the Celtic tradition, the Triskel. Same yeah. thing, same wisdom. Um, so, so this al- alchemy, this um, experience of. I'm not sure how we got we got how you asked a specific question and and. Um, I'm wanting to tie it back to that um, about heartbreak, about the importance of that, of being, you know, it's, it's the heart on fire of Christianity, um, the sacred heart of Jesus. It's, it's, the, it's the Dalai Lama saying, my religion is kindness. And that statement for me is a statement of compassion. It's just compassion. So how do we get compassion? We have to be willing to feel with the other. We have to feel with life. So this is all, this is all this, this, um, crucible, this, this, you know, can burning fire water off heartbreak and why it is so important on the path. And it's all around. I mean, the, when we were driving back from uh, uh, Trevini, um, and I mentioned that we'd stopped in Kettleman City at this, uh, 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 I'm not sure what you would call it, a, a, a rest stop uh, on steroids for uh, distracting people from the road. There was this large section of a redwood tree on display. And it wasn't just a large, you know, it was a huge section, but it was uh, a section that 
they carefully described actually came from a hundred feet up because uh, at the time the loggers were only interested in the first hundred feet for the heartwood and then they would just discard anything taller than that. So here's this huge section of a redwood tree and they had all the requisite little markers, you know, about the, you know, the Great Wall of China was built and et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at that and it was just, it was like, it was painful to see because of everything because of the uh short-sightedness of uh the of the humans who cut down this uh, the stately being and yet at the same time eventually the tree would have died itself you know so it, it's it's like everything was right there in that moment and it was just in this rest stop in on, on highway five in california oh and, i yeah i love that example i mean i it's heartbreaking yeah, just to hear about it, it's heartbreaking. Yet, it's all of that's around us all the time. That's right. And if we're staying open, then we're feeling it. Yeah, yeah, we're feeling the heartbreak. And I don't know you. You're going to say something, Rob. I'm, well, I was just going to take it in different directions. So finish first, and then I'll then I'll do that. Well, I, this might be the direction you were going to go in, but um, in my experience, um, this. Uh, Everything we're talking about, and specifically this heartbreak and, and, and living in the tension between the opposites, this is the place of creativity, which is one of the themes of the book. And I don't know if you were going there, Rob, but it, um, it, you know, begin, beginning with, you know, taking shelter, um, in the first chapter that, um, Creativity for me is is um, a, 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 an essential place of refuge, and it comes out of this willingness to live in the in the fire and the flood um, of heartbreak. That's not where I was going, but it's. I'm glad you mentioned it because that's a bit. That's a huge uh, part of the final. Uh, chapters in the book because, and you, and you, and you speak about it, um, in different ways from different perspectives in very nourishing ways. And I definitely want to get back to that. Uh, but, but I also wanted to, um, ask you about a, a particular section in the book that really struck me as interesting. And it's, it's called cynicism and speed. So, um, and I had never, thought about a connection between those two qualities before before I read this. And maybe maybe the way to sort of uh, so in a lot of the uh, uh, parts of the book, you you'll have a, a few sentences of suggested contemplation or reflection. Um, and so to get into the to ask to ask you to get into a discussion of cynicism and speed, I'll just read that these last um, three sentences that you have, the uh, uh, suggested, by the way, it's, this is, this cynicism and speed is in the, the overall section called obstacles and opportunities. So you write, is there a connection between your own fast drive and an underlying cynical mindset in your speed? Do you leave behind a trail of quote, broken and bleeding bodies, unquote, including your own. Are you cynical about the price you're paying for all of that? That's just a wonderful 
placed um, a wonderful, wonderful offering, um, it seems to me, because I think, in, uh, at least in American culture, uh, so many of us are, are um, encountering these qualities in ourselves that, that, that we need to um, acknowledge. Certainly I do, especially the speed part. <laughs> And and uh, so I'd, I'd like you to speak about what what uh, what you were what you were um, how did how did this particular linkage arise for you? It's very interesting. A very interesting one. Well, again, it comes right directly out of my personal experience and my own struggle with myself. Mm-hmm. Because as as in, as as inspired as I can be, and and um, which is I can be very. I'm, I have a lot of inspiration in my life um, and a lot of, uh, you know, really, um, well, let's just leave it at inspiration for now. But um, um, as inspired as I can be, I can also be very, very cynical. Mm-hmm. And I, I, a friend of mine, I, I say to her often, okay, well, I'm going to speak now from the Irish street punk. <laughs> Because I have one of those in my, you know, <laughs> in my uh, uh, identity and, and a, a really important one. And, and the, the rebel, you know, who's been with me from teenage years on that helped me, helped me tremendously to find my way um, in the in the late 60s and early 70s. And this really rebellious but also idealistic at the same time, super idealistic. But that rebellious one who tells it like it is and cuts through the, 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 you know, the bullshit to, to get to what's real and all of this. I, I love that part of myself. Mm-hmm. However, that part of me can become very, very hardened and cynical. And I can use that. The gifts of that aspect of me, I can use that to buffer myself mm-hmm. from feeling. It's so easy to do, and so this is my own work with myself that 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 connection came from. And I see that the the faster I go, and when I'm really speeding around, what I said, you know, leaving a a trail of broken and bleeding bodies. That that is a quote from Lee, also. <laughs> who said that once about you know when we be, when we go unconscious mm-hmm. when any of us goes unconscious because we are we are like barreling through life at this moment and getting things done and checking things off of our you know to-do list which I love doing who doesn't I mean it's very satisfying um uh, <laughs> that um we can very easily then we, we're not paying attention to those parts of ourselves that are threatened, jealous, prideful, desperate for acknowledgement, um uh uh grieving, uh heart uh um unable to to work with our with our disappointment uh another d word important d word very yeah. important d word yeah. disappointment especially as we get older um that we're not we're, we're no no we're no longer present we are no longer present 
and we can very easily fall uh, fall into um, those aspects of ourselves that you know we often refer to as they're in shadow. They are now in shadow for this moment. Maybe yesterday they weren't. Maybe yesterday I was paying attention. And so I wasn't just mechanically uh, uh, saying something to someone that was hurtful. So there's a broken and bleeding body left behind me because I just made that comment when I left the room that was hurtful to that person. And something in me knew it would be. So, you know, it's back to self-honesty, you know, and self-observation, really knowing thyself. Um, it's another one of those. It's a, it's a good inroad into seeing what is. And, and it's not like I need to like now, like punish myself and beat myself up because I was speeding around and no longer present. And maybe I did something that was hurtful to someone. I don't need to punish myself about that, but I need to see it. Maybe I need to make amends. Yeah. You know? and so, yeah. So, so, so what I'm hearing um, in terms of the linkage between speed and cynicism is that when we're speeding, we're less likely to be paying attention. That's right. And that cynicism, that's the, the fertile ground within which cynicism arises. Right. And then it has its, uh, consequences as well. Thank, thank you. That that uh, that clarifies that very nicely. Thank you for noticing uh, that. I oh. really appreciate that. Well, it's it's just it, it's one of those things. I've never. I don't think I've ever seen that connection drawn mm-hmm. before in any of the oh so many spiritual books I've read over the over the over the many years. So I mean, maybe I did, but it's uh, it's certainly it's, it resonated for me in this book. Years. So, another arena that uh, I wanted to unpack here uh, is a word that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is sahaja. Hmm. And I'd like you to just describe what that. I mean, it, it's it's the starting point for a conversation, really. But I'd, I'd like you to maybe define define it, and then talk about how uh, sahaja. Uh, comes up or its relationship to the art of contemplation? Well, Sahaja is um, a Sanskrit word, and it's usually translated as innate, like inborn. It's already there, already present, um, spontaneous and natural. And sometimes even the, the word easy is included, but that's not easy as in facile or like, you know, you know, like casual it's easy, meaning there's easefulness. Mm-hmm. It's effortless. It, effortless, this quality of effortlessness and spontaneity, these qualities, beautiful qualities, are very much sahaja. And so it refers to the true nature of human beings and, and the sort of, uh, the, the, the original, like who who we were, who, who we were before we became who the world wanted us to be, to, to roughly quote Charles Bukowski. Can mm. you remember your face <laughs> before you became who the world wanted you to be? But with Sahaja, it's not, I mean, yes, okay, a baby has that, but they don't have a conscious reflection 
of it. They just are that, like an anim- animals and trees and everything is Sahaja. Everything has this quality of Sahaja, which is why we love being in nature because re- nature repatterns us to our own Sahaja. You know, trees are wonderful for this. I'm a big, big, big lover of trees. And so when you use the example of the redwood tree, you know, it's just like very, very um, deeply resonant to me. Um, as it is to many, many of us, many people are hearing the the voice of the divine feminine in through the trees these days. Um, so we love to be in nature because it it if we can if we can slow down enough to be present in nature, nature will automatically like repattern us, like connect us, like transmit about transmit sahaja to us. And it, and we can we, we can get on that vibration with nature. It's starting to reconnect us to our essential self, our essential nature. So, Zaja is a very, very, very important and precious. You know, the teachings around that are just really beautiful, and so much becomes possible once Sahaja is present, once we're present to what's really actually there in us. All all kinds of creativity, uh, connection, you know, praise, praise of the beauty of life and of, of creation, um, praise of the uncreated as well as the created. It's, everything becomes possible. We know what we need to know when Sahaja is, when we're tapped into mm-hmm. that. In the, in the way, it's very, I think I mentioned this in the book. I mentioned the Bhagavad Gita and the, the yoga of, of, of the integral yoga of buddhi, of being in contact with buddhi, the innate, the, that part of us that knows or gnosis, you know, in the, in the, in the Greek. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, in other traditions, I've seen the the notion of listening, you know, in a way, listening to the silence to yes. uh, allow something to emerge that's not being forced. And it's interesting, you know, what, what was resonating for me with this is that Sahaja is a, a way of being in our lives as well. And where, where this shows up for me is... Um, Within the last few years, in terms of relationship to my professional life, which is um, in a you know engineering function and a uh, division in a corporation, they I just found that I wanted to more and more not approach it from a place of like control, like trying to figure everything out, make lists, uh, be you know basically have every thing determined, but more from a place of listening, partly just because I didn't have the energy to do otherwise, but it, 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 it's what I found is that if you bring a naturalness or an ease where you're at ease, then things tend to happen anyway, you know, things happen of their own accord and you don't have to be in control as much as holding a vision for something happening becomes its own kind of uh, magnetic field around which the circumstances of uh, the world kind of orient themselves. It doesn't mean that un- unexpected things don't happen, but I've just found that um, 
it's possible to be at ease and the world still works. It's possible to be natural and the world still works. I don't, I, you know, and it was, it was an interesting discovery because it's, it's like, I, I don't have to stress in the way that I used to stress about control or outcomes as much as just trying to be present and, and hold a, a scene of possibility and, and allowing that to, um, uh, contribute to the movement of the situation. Mm-hmm. And, and so this, this, so Sahaja comes up, you know, it's like it, it, this, um, as I said, a way of being that's available to us in all of our, all the circumstances of our lives. And, and for me, it's a reflection on how much I've tried to control circumstances and, and I'm, and I'm by no means uh, done with working through a lot of those mechanisms of wanting to control, as Rob will probably tell you. <laughs> but uh, I I do see that what you what you describe as sahaja is a antidote to that, and and it leads to a sort of a dancing through the movement of life, as opposed to a a struggle or a fight through the movement of life. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful description. I really appreciate what you're saying. And I, 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 um, two words that, that, that you were just speaking, one listening and the other one dancing. And, um, and, and that, I mean, I, it's, it's a work in progress. You know, I, you know the thing about this sort of, this is a powerful spiritual practice that we're talking about. It's a razor's edge. Life is constantly throwing things at us. Um, that's just the way it is. It's like, you know, being, being, being the, in a video game, you know, being the heroine in the video game, things are getting thrown at us. It's going faster and faster. The more, the more we uh, learn some, or we develop some capacity, then we get tested at another level sort of so you know like uh, they often say in the in the forum about something about you know if you learn how to solve problems at this level you'll get more problems it's like that um or like my friend robert Svoboda, he says you might as well relax because you know trouble is coming (laughs) (laughs) it's always a work in progress yeah and if we think we're done and we've attained something, that's the sure, that's a fast road, you know, to, to getting shown that we, in fact, are, you know, beginner's mind, you know, we have, we have to go back and sometimes start at the beginning. So, um, but I, I, I find that it's all, it's all, always, it's about like getting, getting back on the horse, you know, fall off, get back on, fall off, get back on in terms of this. It's not. And, and the, doing the ongoing work of clearing the pathway to this, to that that's existing in there um, and having faith in it. Yeah. Having faith in it, I, I really I love your description of that. That we don't have to make it happen. That we can just be receptive and wait and see and dance through it. And um, 
And I was writing Lee's biography. I'm sure I've shared this with you both before. And this is before he died. And um, I was talking to him about my concerns about having to write about certain aspects of him or his students, my groove eyes, you know, in the, in the sangha that I'm part of. And <laughs> because a biographer has to, and we just, some, he wanted very much something he wanted very much from me was for me to tell it the way I saw it, how his work evolved and his relationships and all of this. And that's, you know, that's kind of a scary and daunting process and responsibility. And so I was, sort of lamenting that and worrying over it and probably obsessing some. (laughs) And he said, well, just dance lightly through it. He said, just dance lightly through it. That's skillful means. Hmm. This is a beautiful teaching from him on this. Like, how do you get to Sahaja? How do you get open enough that Sahaja can bubble up and, you know, let Sahaja do it. Let the, let, let, let life do it instead of me doing it. Well, I'm going to uh, uh, turn to uh, a feature of the book I haven't expressly mentioned, which is that um, you are quite poetic um, throughout throughout the book in your use of language. It seems to me, and um, and so I'm going to read just a few sentences to sort of give people uh, a sense of it, and and. And not ironically, what I'm going to read from is the section on beauty, which I think is often a a, um, somewhat neglected feature of the spiritual path. So anyway, you write, the art of contemplation bears the fruit of an awakened heart, but we will find that we need to stay engaged in the process to keep it open. Contemplation is a way of life, not a one-time deal or a limited engagement. Once we have tasted the sweetness of the inner life, we will find that we are hungry for its nectar, yearning for its illuminating light, longing for another glimpse of its beauty. We keep the doorway open by staying in touch with our own sacred vulnerability and brokenheartedness, so that the river of our feeling flows unimpeded and the fire of our clarity burns bright. That's beautifully crafted. Those are some beautifully crafted sentences. Um, But the second sentence, um, contemplation is a way of life, not a one-time deal or limited engagement. Just uh, reiterates what you were just, what you were just saying. So I think sometimes the habit of mind at least in our culture, is that there are things and not processes. That's kind of that's kind of an easy distinction to fall into. And 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 here you're reminding us that contemplation is not something that uh, once done we then go on to something else. And and uh, and that's. Um, and there is something quite beautiful about that because that then we resonate with the beauty of the world around us. It seems to me in contemplation in a way that continually feeds our 
our need for beauty, I'll, I'll assert, and our um, resonance with beauty. So, um, I mean, I could go on because you have a lot more really lovely, uh, some lovely crafted, uh, lovingly crafted uh, rhetoric about about this. But I, but I'd, I'd rather hear it straight from your mouth right now. Um, you might start by talking uh, about um, the Baul's and um, Indian mystics using the term bhava or divine mood, because I think that that's a that's a useful way in for our listeners. So please um, tell us about bhava and how that relates to um, beauty. <clears throat> Well, for me, um, beauty is, is a divine, a quality of the divine that, that gives me immediate access to this sahaja that we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, beauty takes a lot of different forms. A volcano, which is completely destructive, is beautiful. It's awesome in its beauty and power. And it's going to completely decimate and destroy the countryside around it. It will be just a, you know, a a, a blackened wasteland for a long time until that starts breaking down and then it becomes the richest soil anywhere within, you know, hundreds of miles and some incredible tropical forest will will emerge from it with this amazing diversity of life and beauty. So there's this relationship between uh, creation and beauty and this relationship between destruction and beauty and a relationship between between preservation and beauty. You find beauty in all three of those um, modes of of life, doing life. Um, so bhava, bhava, is a Sanskrit word that that refers to a divine state of feeling. And you know, there's a lot of in the bhakti path. There's a lot of in the bubble path. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on cultivating inner states of beauty, devotion, love, um, longing, because these produce a, an inner beauty. And the more the more we can cultivate that in ourselves in moments when when we are able to, when we're not busy doing other work <laughs> within ourselves, um, the more we will get to rasa. R-A-S-A, rasa, which means nectar or juice or ambrosia. And that nectar being, uh, being very, um, um, the, the nectar, the rasa is, um, is directly related to our relationship with the divine, the reciprocity of human and divine. So we cultivate bhava, maybe through beauty, 
That's the fast road through creativity, through love, through compassion, through humility. Humility. I was thinking of humility, something you all were talking about just a few iterations back there about how humbling it is to, to hold the tension between the opposites, to feel the anxiety and pain that's free floating out in the world that you, that, that our fellow humans and, and ourselves are feeling. Um, so there, this relationship with the divine of, of seeking the, the beauty of, of the divine manifest in the world that might result in rasa. This is a, a reciprocal stream. It's love. It's just, you know, getting into some mysticism because of course it is, but it's earthy mysticism and it's, it's Sahaja mysticism. So it is very rooted in our, in our ordinary naturalness. And it's not, it's not pretentious. This is one of the things that I, I love about this, the path of Sahaja is that uh, it cultivates humility and naturalness. Like Sri Anurvan Bowell says, there is no greater yoga than to be perfectly natural. And so yoga, you know, being that which links us to the divine, bringing it back to bhava or bhavana and, and rasa um, as this reciprocal flow. I mean, who does not want to, to realize that we are actually loved by the divine? Actually feel it, have a direct experience of it, not just a concept about it, but actually be able to feel, to be in the bhava, in the state where we're receptive and vulnerable and humble and, and awed by beauty and filled with wonder. And all of that overflows in our praise to the divine. And what comes back to us is divine love, the rasa, the nectar. So, uh, so you've just uh, uh, demonstrated that uh, the way you craft sentences is the way you think, which is which is nice to see. <laughs> and and um, and uh, uh, you know this um, this linkage which you just made uh, briefly in, uh, in what you just said between creativity and beauty, I think is, is something that I'd like you to speak to as we're, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot more time left in, in our conversation here, but I think uh, the, the, you go back and forth and, and, and discuss creativity in relationship to contemplation as um, more than I think I've ever seen it described in other writings on contemplation that that I've read. So, um, and it really resonates. I think in particular, perhaps it might just be me, but perhaps it particularly resonates at this time in the human endeavor because we so desperately need creativity to, to mitigate the suffering and, and, turn it into something else. So if you could talk about that relationship between uh, um, 
creativity and contemplation. I, I, I think that's a good, a, a good theme that will help people. Um, thank you, Rob. Um, creativity. Well, I was talking about it as, as this place of refuge. Um, it's the natural state. It's one of the, the, mm-hmm. the fundamental natural. It's, this, it is Sahaja, you know, and it, it it's, um, um, I mean, teacher Lee said, said, uh, once he gave a teaching about, he was talking about the creative process because he was very, very, very passionate. And he was a writer and poet himself. Um, very passionate about developing the arts and about this principle of beauty, uh, for his, in, in, for his students and in his teachings. And he, he said that, um, what is transformational about creativity is not the re- end result, the painting or the recording, the recorded music or the concert now given or the book written. What is transformational is the process that the individual goes into to produce that thing. Hmm. It's in the process of it. And that has been really my experience. And so, you know, when I was, when I was, I think you were reading that, uh, about, um, that I had written something about once we taste the sweetness of the inner world, we have a longing and we want to go back. Well, creativity is like that because we get, we, we, um, I, I can't really talk about creativity without talking about imagination and flow. And, you know, this, this too is bringing us back to the mythopoetic lens the mythopoetic perspective of of the only way if we human beings are going to survive this turning point that we are at the only way we're going to do it is through imagination which of course is a return to soul which is a return of the feminine dimensions and the depth dimensions of life and so imagination and creativity of course and the muse the experience of the muse it's um it's it's going in there even if nobody ever read the book which uh, you know, as a writer this is something very very uh, uh you know we we have to work with because we i have to work with because i i am compelled to write the book whatever it is the one I'm working on currently that's on the back burner. Um, I'm compelled to write the thing because I need to go back into that state. <laughs> hmm. I need to, to surrender myself again to the blank page. I need to be open in that way and just let something come through me. It doesn't even matter at some level. I mean, in an ultimate sense, it doesn't matter if anybody's going to read it. However, of course, I want. <laughs> the human in me wants wants it to be read. And of course, it is so fulfilling for me to have this little book, The Art of Contemplation, which is a really little, wonderful little book. <laughs> it's easy to read. To have that reflected um, back to me by the two of you. I'm so grateful as a writer because it does mean something uh, as a human being to have it uh, um, 
have it read and and noticed. Yeah, there's a a point you make in this section on flow and creativity that I think it's important for listeners to hear and be emphasized, which is you don't have to be a great writer or you don't have to be a great musician. You don't have to be, you know, uh, the, the best artist on the planet to enter into this place you're describing. And I think, you know, arguably that's something that modernity has lost because we have such ready access to works of creative, uh, um, uh, brilliance, you know, all around us that we become sort of passive to the creative process. And yet in old times, you know, people would play pianos, they'd play music, they'd sing songs. They'd, uh, they'd, uh there was a sense of play with kids that, um, uh, wasn't mediated by technology as it is today. And all of these things are available for entering this place you're describing that any of us, you know, just even if we spontaneously sing a song or, uh, or you demonstrate this in spades and writing workshops that you give, you know, all of us have the ability to tap into this flow, to tap into this uh, uh, space of creativity that you're describing. I, I want to jump in here first before you respond, though, Angela, because because um, I take what you and Stuart are saying uh, as gospel. And I want to add that it does matter how people respond or, or engage with a work of art, mm-hmm. um, uh, because that can be just as creative a process um, just as powerful a process, just as um, sparking new imagination wow. that that the author of a book, for example, didn't have in mind right. when 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 those words went onto a screen or page, right? Wow. So so it's not it's not just from the from the one side. It's 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 from the the conversation, it seems to me, that is that, or at least the possibility for conversation that opens up when there's um, a beautiful musical performance, and it is in uh, the, uh, the it is uh, present in the bodies of the listeners. Mm, so true, and its relationship. Now it becomes like a relationship from from one person to another. It's a it's becomes reciprocal. Yes, um, it's not just between me and the muse, right? <laughs> oh, not to the other, but not to diminish the relationship between you no, and the muse. It's two different <laughs> of relationship, and That's it's right. very fulfilling. It's deeply and profoundly fulfilling and nourishing. Yeah. And 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 for uh, I I'll I'll guess that most of the people who um, encounter your book, The Art of Contemplation, who don't have a, an opportunity like we, Stuart and I, do to converse with you about it, will have those same you know they'll they'll have the same sorts of opportunities and doorways to imagination and creativity that that we do. It's just that you, you won't know about it consciously. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but um, I, I just trust that these things um, 
are communicated at a level that we are not, that our phenomenal bodies aren't entirely uh, uh, capable of, of picking up. And, you know, with any creative project that, that's going to then go out there and become available to others, mm-hmm. um, there's a certain letting go that the that the the person, the writer or painter or whatever, uh, ha- there's a letting go that has to happen of like, okay, this is this is given to the world. It's not mine anymore. It will do what it will do. And, and that, that's a very beautiful relationship with, with life also of, of a kind of surrender to this thing is bigger than me. For some reason, it, I wrote it. I was the vehicle and. Yeah. And that's a teaching. Yeah. That is a teaching. It is, and it is, it is the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita of, of the relation, ultimate, kind of ultimate relationship with the divine as you are mm-hmm. the doer, not me. Right. And there's something very beautiful. And we, each person has to find that for herself or himself. You know, it's, it becomes mm-hmm. rhetorical if we just give it as a teaching. It's like, eh, it becomes some kind of dogma or something. But all, something as, as beautiful as that, we have to live into it and find out if it's true for us. I have, it is true for me. I have found, I've tasted that. I can say that. I can say I have tasted it. Everything's a work in progress. So. <laughs> Including this conversation. Including so. this conversation. Well, I, I think about, um, uh, you know, my Shakuhachi teacher is, uh, 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 embodies this and that, you know, he genuinely considers himself a beginner. You know, he's, he's, he's one of the great players of the world. Yeah, for sure. He's constantly giving away what he knows to his students so that, uh, he can figure out more. And so we're always beginning. Absolutely. It's like, uh, I, uh, recently with Thomas, my husband, we watched this movie about Hokusan's daughter. Hokusan is, is the Japanese print master from the 19th century who, among many other uh, objective works of art, uh, produced the wave, you know, and he and and the, the movie, the, the point that they're making over and over again is that he was 90 years old and he's saying, I want to be better someday. I will be a true master of the art. And it's just a beautiful teaching. But I wanted to to just just say uh, recently, Stuart, you and I played you were playing the flute. And I was playing the Ektara, which is a one-stringed instrument. And, um, you know, it's in moments like this that, that where creativity, the muse is present and we're just, we're just, uh, you know, blowing, blowing the air through the, the, the bamboo flute or, or, or plucking the string of the, of the, of the Ektara, which is a one-stringed Bengali instrument. Um, these are these are beautiful passing moments and you can't capture them. Yeah. There's no capturing and that's really that is precious. And I, I find that because I play the piano also and I write about this a little bit in the book. Um um that just going and sitting down at the piano and I play by ear, that this is these moments and music in particular, like when there's no there's no result. There's no recorded uh, result or product, and nobody's ever going to hear it. It's just you playing your flute. Yeah. Out, you know, out, out, in, out in your sanctuary of your 
beautiful nature sanctuaries behind your house in the garden there, um, or me playing the piano in my cottage. Um, it's a prayer. It, it is a, it really is. And I feel ultimately this with creativity that it's, it's, it's intricately connected with praise. Mm. Oh gosh. Now you bring me back to, I wish I had had the, uh, Ursula Le Guin poem right now, uh, to reread, but it's, uh, it's all about a contemplation on the word contemplation. And, um, and that, and, and the poem ends with praise to the natural world and then silence. And that is a, uh, a beautiful, um, you know, the, the, that, that section that I was reading from in your book earlier on beauty, it seems to me is praise of beauty. Okay. And, and, and in recent years, I've come to, understand that so many sacred texts really that's what they are is just praise Mm -hmm. it's uh, you know an elaborated um uh, poetic engagement with gratitude and praise for what we're given so um what a nice job you did with this book Angela, thank you, Rob. Yeah, you are you are very welcome. Um, are, are, how are we doing on time here, Stuart? We have three minutes. Three minutes. So, well, so go ahead. Oh, I I, um, I just uh, I got distracted by someone uh, delivering something at our door, but uh, just wanted to speak to that uh, expression that you made of the 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 prayer of our moments of creativity that uh, don't endure, but everything is like that, I think. And that's, that's the, what I take from the book and the art of contemplation is that when we're out in nature, what we see is never going to be repeated. That will never happen again in that way. It's a unique, it's a unique expression in that moment, just like a song you play uh, uh, on the piano or the, uh, duet that we did together in the darshan hall last weekend you know it arises it passes it's the uh, as our friend jim wilson would say you know the sonic realm is the true teacher of emptiness because things arise they persist and they pass away and then there's silence again oh that's really beautiful and it's so true everything is passing and that poignancy you know i think is part of the beauty that you capture in this book and so I, I really i really have appreciated reading it and i think it's a you know a great contribution and uh, a wonderful demonstration of like out of the strange time of the the pandemic that there are these unexpected gifts that have arisen out of that yeah i'm, I'm just gonna jump in here because i wanted to um emphasize that when you talked about playing the piano a moment ago, um, uh, you, you frame that place you've come to with playing the piano in a story about how your father rejected mm-hmm. that capacity in yourself. 
And then that was, you were estranged from that um, capacity for, for many years, but you discuss how you creatively responded to that over time and came to the, came to the um, sense that you uh, uh, alluded to earlier. And that's, that's, that's one of the nicest things about this book. This is, that isn't the only personal, um, more than anecdote that, that you have in the book to explain what you mean, but those are very telling. So I want to, I just want to emphasize to potential readers that, that, um, it, it ain't just pretty words. It's also, um, uh, poignant experience related, which, which helps ground the book in ways that other readers can relate to their own poignant experiences. And so, that it's really through ordinary life, like like I think I say in that section about piano playing, you don't have to be Beethoven yeah. to be create to, to sit and play the piano and, and, and have creative flow to experience this state of flow, which is connect which is the sahaja, this natural. Yeah. And 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 that's true of spiritual life as well. You don't have to be living on an ashram or in gate or or you know you. Don't, some of us do not have to even do years of arduous spiritual practice. We just need to be, um, we just need to be present and alive, and honest and feeling and uh, you, you know really that that deep. Contemplative life is available to everyone. Well, that's a uh, perfect place to uh, end this conversation. So, Angela, thank you so much for joining us on the Mystical Positivist. Thank you so much, Stuart and Rob. It's been a it's been uh, um, a real honor, actually, and um, um, I look forward to talking about your next books. Thank you so much. It's always a, such a joy to be with you both. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Mary Angelon Young about her recent book, The Art of Contemplation, published in 2021 by Home Press. In this compassionate and resourceful book, Angelon gently guides the reader into a larger awareness reminding us of simple ways to stay grounded in the present moment and connect with what is real in an increasingly unreal human world. With personal narrative, meditative reflections, and invitations to create expression, she draws us into the garden of her inner world. Here we witness how it is possible to transform the suffering we experience in ourselves and others into a nourishment that feeds our essential being. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.